Well, in our study last week, we looked at part one of the divine outline. Part one of the divine outline, where can you find the divine outline in the book of Revelation? Chapter 1, verse 19. Excellent. And what is part one of the outline? What was the first thing that Jesus told John? Write down the things which you have seen. And what had John seen? What did John see in chapter 1? Saw Jesus in his glorified, awesome state. Right, the things which you have seen, Revelation 1.19, and John saw Jesus glorified. And we talked about last week, and we will continue to remind you that the revelation is Jesus. He is the revelation. He is the entire point of the book. If we're looking for something other than Jesus, you're not going to find it in Revelation. For the book, the revelation is of Jesus. Peter and Paul both called Jesus our God and our Savior. Peter called Jesus that in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Paul called Jesus our God and Savior in Titus chapter 2, verse 13. Now I mentioned that because last week I received several emails following our study. And they were seeking more information specifically on the biblical deity of Jesus. You may remember we started out and I said Jesus is the point. And as Christians, if there's anything we should never be soft on, it's the deity of Jesus. It's Jesus' Godhood. It's His true nature, that He is God. That's something that as Christians we need to know, we need to be firm on, we need to understand. This is what the Bible teaches, that Jesus is God. And there were several who wrote to me after the fact and said, I believe that, I just need more scripture to back it up. Can you, can you give me a little help? And so that's when I decided, okay, we'll go back. I've done this before, but I figure we'll start out with this tonight and go on just a little walk through the scriptures to see what the Bible says about the deity of Jesus as we head into chapter 2 tonight. But I want to start in chapter 1, verse 8. Look back there for a moment. And this is where we start. Now, in my Bible, I've got, after each one of the verses I'm going to give you, I have a little arrow, and then the next verse written right there on the page so I can flip right over to the next one, because this is very handy, especially in talking to someone about the deity of Christ. Uh, if you have a friend who happens to be Mormon or possibly Jehovah's Witness or a Christian scientist or another religion or cult that does not accept or believe that Jesus is God, this is a path that you can take them in Scripture to show them exactly what the Bible says about the deity of Christ. And I think it's very helpful. So beginning in Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, if you ask someone, a person of a cult who doesn't believe in the deity of Jesus, who is speaking there, their answer will be immediately, it's God. He even says that right there. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. That's God. And they'll say, not Jesus. You say, all right. Well, let's go from there. Well, I believe it's Jesus speaking here, but, but I'll accept your translation for a moment. You believe it's, it's God, not Jesus. So let's go from there to Isaiah chapter 41. In verse 4, Isaiah 41, verse 4. Now again, I have written right by Revelation 1.8. I have Isaiah 41.4 with a little arrow that sends me right back to the book of Isaiah. So flipping back there, Isaiah chapter 41. Isaiah 41 and verse 4. I'll read this to you. 
And probably the best thing you can do, you can flip and follow the, the fastest that you can, but if you can just follow fast enough to get the next verse written down by the verse that I'm reading, you're doing great tonight. Okay? Isaiah chapter 41, verse 4. Who has performed and accomplished it? Calling forth the generations from the beginning. I, the Lord, am the first and with the last I am He. So again, we ask the question, who's speaking here? The Lord is. The Lord. It's God speaking. I, the Lord, am the first and with the last I am He. From Isaiah 44, verse 4. We go on then. Where do we go here? We go to Isaiah 44, verse 6. Flip over to Isaiah 44, verse 6. Isaiah 44, 6. Which then says, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. That's interesting. The Lord and His Redeemer speaking at the same time. I am the first, and I am the last, and there is no God besides me. Who's speaking there? Once again, it's the Lord. The Lord. Now, we have a little, you know, a little road bump here, speed bump here. It says the Lord and His Redeemer. So apparently it's not just the Lord speaking, it's the Lord and His Redeemer. But again, the cultists would say, hey, no, that's just the Lord speaking, the first and the last. There is no God beside me. See, it says right there, there's only one God, and it's the Lord. Good enough. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 48, verse 12. Isaiah 48, verse 12. Listen to me, O Jacob, even Israel whom I called. I am he. I am the first. I am also the last. Verse 13 going on. Surely my hand founded the earth and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand together. Who's speaking? It's the Lord. Okay, so in all these situations, the Lord is the first and the last. The Lord is the one speaking. It's the Lord God. Now, you and I, again, as Christians, we understand there's an inference here. We understand that Jesus is the Lord, that they are one. The Father and I, Jesus said, are one. But in this verse, we see once again, I am the first, I am the last. It's the Lord. Now flip all the way back to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21. We begin reading in verse 5 of Revelation 21. Watch these things closely. Verse 5, Revelation 21. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. And then he said, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Who is speaking here? The Lord is. God is. But let me ask you a question. Who is it that cried out, it's done, it's finished? It's finished. Jesus did on the cross. John chapter 19, verse 30. Jesus was on the cross, and his last words after completing his mission, after paying for the redemption of our sins, after saving us on the cross, he cried out, it is finished, and he died. Same phrase. Then he said to me, it is done. Jesus is the one who says, it is finished. Who gives, by the way, to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost? Who gives from the spring of living water? 
Jesus says. John chapter 7 verse 38. Jesus said, He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Now, occultists might still say, Yeah, but these are, these are allusions to God. Jesus is just kind of speaking as a mouthpiece for God. He's still not God. You still haven't really proved anything. Okay, Revelation chapter 22 going on. Verse 12. Revelation 22 verse 12. Behold, I am coming quickly. And my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Who is coming quickly? Jesus is. Jesus is the one who is coming quickly. Now think with me for a moment. Just pause in, in, our, in our thoughts. And remember that in Revelation chapter 1 from last week, John describes Jesus... He gives a picture of Jesus that looks almost identical to Daniel's description of the Ancient of Days in Daniel chapter 7. Do you remember that? Hair is white as wool. He looks like a wizened old warrior king. And Daniel, that's how he described the Ancient of Days in Daniel chapter 7. But here in Revelation chapter 1, John describes Jesus that way. But listen to this. And remember, Jesus is the one who's coming to render judgment. Daniel chapter 7 verse 21 Daniel said, I kept looking. And that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them. We'll talk about the horn later. The horn is Antichrist. Antichrist. That horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them, Daniel 7.22, until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed. Until the Ancient of Days came. Judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one, and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. Again, who comes, according to the book of Revelation, who comes to render judgment? It's Jesus Christ. He said, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha, I am the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. By the way, listen to the words of Micah's prophecy of Jesus' birth, saying, But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from, one, from you one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. One will come out of Bethlehem. It was Jesus who was born of Bethlehem, but who didn't just come from Bethlehem. No, he came from days of eternity. He is the Ancient of Days. Now, if the person involved in a cult still wants to say that the person speaking in Revelation 22, verses 12 and 13 is God, then we'll just slide on down from verse 13 to verse 16 in Revelation 22 and look at who the speaker is. He gives his own name. I, Jesus. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. And he says this interesting phrase, I am the root and the descendant of David. The bright morning star. That's, that's amazing. I am not only David's descendant, I'm his root. Not only did I come from David, David came from me. Only one who is the Ancient of Days could make such a claim as that. Jesus is God. But if that's still not clear enough, flip back to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 8. And speaking here, we have one who says to the angel of the church in Smyrna, Write, the first and the last. Listen to this, the first and the last. Remember, God described himself three times in Isaiah, more than that throughout scripture, as the first and the last. 
the first and the last who was dead and has come to life. That's Jesus. When was God ever dead and has come to life? But Jesus was. After his crucifixion, dead, come back to life. The bottom line, gang, is as you read through these verses, you cannot have two alphas and two omegas. You can't have two firsts and two lasts, two beginnings and two ends. There's only one, and that one is Jesus. He is one and the same with God the Father. Jesus and the Father, Son of Man, Ancient of Days, are one. And the Bible is clear about it. So just that little walk, I hope, gives you a little bit of background and help with that. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And what completely freaks out Jewish rabbis is the word one in the Hebrew is the plural form of the word. The Lord our God, the Lord is a plurality of one. How can you have that? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It's awesome. What was that reference? That was Deuteronomy 6.4. Now, and if you missed any of those verses, uh, tap me afterward and I'll get them to you. One last question. As John receives the revelation, where is the Alpha and the Omega? Where is he? As John is receiving the revelation, well, look at chapter 1, verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And chapter 2, verse 1, as we get into, by the way, part 2 of the outline, the things which are... To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Walking among the lampstands, the ancient of days, Jesus Christ, is in the church. He is among the churches. John, in this vision, sees something glorious and wonderful. He sees Jesus moving among the churches. The seven churches in Asia, but so much more than that as you're going to get a taste of tonight. Jesus is active and involved. His spirit is invigorating and enlivening the church. And for all the mistakes and failures of the church over the last 2,000 years, Jesus is here. This is the method through which Jesus has chosen to work in the world. Through the church. So I caution you and encourage you not to throw out the church because of bad things that humans in the church have done. Don't give up on the church, for Jesus hasn't. Jesus hasn't. He is walking among the lampstands. Now verse 1 tells us that this is to be written to or sent to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Well, who or what is the angel of this church? In the Greek it's the word angelos. Where we get our word angel, angelos. But it has two possible meanings to it that are important to understand. One is angel. And it's entirely likely, and I believe that every church has its own angel. Its own angel watching over it, caring for it, protecting it, looking after it. We see with Gabriel and the people of Israel how a particular angel is connected to and tied to a certain people. Anytime God decides to send an angel to Israel or to bring news about Israel, it's interesting, it's always Gabriel who happened to be the one who brought the news of Jesus' birth as well as the news of the prophecies to Daniel and Daniel chapter 9 and in other places. And so I think that we can probably assume that for these seven churches, there were seven angels. But the letter's practical. The letter is not spiritual and ethereal that, that is supposed to somehow be written and then sent off to an angel out there. This is practical and for the people. And the second meaning of Angelos is simply messenger. 
messenger. It may be the human messenger or pastor of each of these seven churches is being referred to in each one of these places. To the angel of the church. Now you may say my pastor's no angel and I can't fault you that. But in this case, these angels may simply be pastors. To the pastors of the seven churches. Matthew chapter 11 verse 10. John the Baptist is called my angelos. My angel. My messenger. And so the word is used not just for angels, but it is also used for messengers, or in this case possibly for pastors. And again in verse 1 we see that Jesus, Jesus is walking among the lampstands. He is in the church. Now, considering this whole idea about Jesus being in the church, you might say, well, isn't the church a spiritual thing anyway? I mean, it's not just, it's not us gathered in the barn. It's so much more. It's, it's kind of the spiritual church that God has in the world. And, it's, and it's, you can't just tie it down to one fellowship or, or certain groups of people. Gang, the church is not only spiritual, it is physical. It is tangible. Paul said, you are Christ's body, using a very physical description of the church. We as human beings are the church. And Jesus prayed for the church to be unified in such a way that the world might believe because it is through the church, at least in this age, it is through the church that Jesus chose to bring the message of salvation, which gives a responsibility, a job for us, a ministry task. Regardless of what my gifts are, what my abilities are, every one of us, as members of Christ's body, as part of the church, have a task. We've joined up with something fantastic, something eternal. And that is the message of the gospel of salvation. Jesus wanted us loving each other, unified in such a way that people would believe because of the existence of the church. John 17, verse 20, Jesus is praying his high priestly prayer on the Thursday night, the night he was betrayed. And he prayed, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, speaking of his immediate disciples, but also for those who believe in me through their word. That they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. And so John reveals Jesus as walking among the churches. Among all seven churches. All seven churches. Note the emphasis. Chapter 1, verse 4. John to the seven churches who are in Asia. Chapter 1, verse 11. Write in the book what you see and send it to the seven churches. And then he lists them there. Chapter, or verse 13, I turned to see the voice speaking and having turned I saw the seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, there he is, one like a son of man. And down in verse 20 again, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So what do these churches mean? What's the idea here? Jesus is obviously among these seven particular lampstands. And we understand that the lampstands indicate or show us the church what does this mean for us what's the practicality of these things that's what I want you to get tonight we're going to get through about verse 7 we're going to study Ephesus in just a minute but before we do before we launch into chapters 2 and 3 some things to understand about the seven churches to whom these letters were written here we go four applications four applications of Jesus letters to the seven churches number one these letters apply historically they apply historically. These were seven churches located in Asia Minor, which today is Turkey, north and west of it from Israel, and up against the Aegean Sea, Turkey as of today. These churches were actual churches. 
And they were along, and I mentioned this before, they were along a Roman postal route, beginning on the southwest coast with Ephesus, and running on up to Smyrna. There was an actual road, a Roman road that ran along there, and this is where postal uh, deliveries were made along this road. So from Ephesus running up to Smyrna, and then further up to Pergamum, and then south and inland to Thyatira, and then back down to Sardis, east to Philadelphia, and finally back south to the southern and more temperate town, of Laodicea, which was neither hot nor cold, but we'll see that later. These letters apply historically. So if someone asks, well, who are these seven churches? You can say, well, they were seven churches in Asia at the time, in these towns that existed. And if you went there today, if you visited Turkey today, you could see these towns, or at least ruins of the towns. These were seven churches that existed in the day. But secondly, these letters not only apply historically, they also apply corporately. Corporately, For the letters, as we read through them, and you will see this, apply to all churches of all times. Any church can sit down and do a study, as we're going to do here at the bridge, through these seven churches, and glean and gain understanding for ourselves as a church. We can learn from this. We can read and see what the church's problems were, what their, what their good things were, how they were doing, and learn from what Jesus has to say. There is a corporate application written for all the churches. Every church goes through some or all of the experiences that we will see related to these seven churches. For example, leaving love behind in favor of business. I, I gotta stop just for a moment and share something with you. We have been praying and praying about this land idea over here on Troxel and 20, and I'll tell you honestly, the leaders right now of the bridge are not hearing a thing. We're not hearing anything from God. There is no indication that we should even be now attempting to buy that land. And so the question is, you know, from a human perspective, from a business perspective, we need to get the ball rolling here. We need to pick up some land and start building something because that's what churches do, right? And yet that doesn't seem to be the indication, at least right now, of the Lord. And we're still praying and we're still listening and we're still going to see what He has in store for the bridge. But as of right now, the choice is, do we do business or do we do church? Do we follow the Lord and listen to Him? Or do we listen to our own hearts and our own worries and our own concerns thinking, you know, we can't be here for long so we need to have somewhere to go. Well, the Lord knows that. He knows exactly what He's doing. I'll tell you one thing for sure, land or no, God's primary concern for this fellowship is that we love each other. And so we're going to focus on that. But you'll see with Ephesus, leaving love behind in favor of business. Or struggling against crushing persecution as in Smyrna. Or allowing false teaching to creep in. Churches deal with these things. Tolerating immorality. Churches that are lifeless. Churches that keep God's word with perseverance. Or churches that are bland and blasé and lukewarm. Churches deal with the issues that will be raised in these seven letters. And any or all of these can be a part of the life or the death of a church. Any church leadership, any ministry within a church can apply and learn from these personal letters given to these seven churches. Now, they apply historically, number one. They apply corporately, number two. They also apply personally. In that, you and I, each as individuals, as we study these churches, can see in our own lives how these things play out. We can learn from what Jesus had to say to the churches. And I would encourage you as we study this to listen. What is he saying to you? What is the message for you? What is he saying that's getting under your skin? When you walk out after a study of a particular church, there's just something eating at you. Go back and reread the letter to that church because it may very well be a personal letter for you. 
Because these letters apply personally. Jesus has a favorite phrase. Spoken seven times in these seven letters. Revelation 2, verse 7, verse 11, verse 17, verse 29. Revelation 3, verses 6, 13, and 22. You will run across it with every letter. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I know I threw those verses at you real fast, but they're right here in Revelation. You can find them as we wander through them. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus is saying, hey, this is not just historical, not just corporate. It is personal. If you have an ear, then you listen up. Well, i got all kinds of problems with my church. There's all kinds of negative stuff going on. Well, then maybe you need to pay attention to what the Lord is saying to you. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Romans 10.17 tells us the following, that faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. And let me encourage you that that verse is not just for first-time believers. That's not just for somebody who has, you know, is coming to Christ. It's not just encouragement for us as Christians. Oh yeah, for someone to come to faith in Jesus, they need to hear the word. So we need to give them the word. No, if you want your faith to grow, faith comes through hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And so you continue in the word. Man, my faith just seems stagnant and lifeless. I can't can't get it to grow forward. Then you need to listen to the word. I've had so many conversations with people who are saying, yeah, I just I wish I could get closer to the Lord. And I'm like, well, if you showed up to Bible study every now and then, it might help. <laughs> because faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the Word of Christ. If you want to grow, you've got to hear the Word. So as we study these churches, listen up, because this is not just history. It's not just something for the church in general. It is for you personally and for me. And number four, the final application of these four, these letters apply prophetically. Corporately, historically, personally, and prophetically. For each one of these seven churches, powerfully and poetically and prophetically, represents seven obvious stages of the church over the last 2,000 years. And it is absolutely stunning. It's amazing to watch this. You could take, you've seen it done with transparency. And we don't use them so much anymore. We mostly use PowerPoint these days. But in, in older times, a businessman would be giving a lecture and he'd have a transparency out there and he'd have one graph on it. You'd lay another transparency on top of it and you'd see another graph. Well, if you could take all of church history and lay it down on a transparency and project it up, you could one at a time take transparencies for each one of these churches and lay it over different ages and see very clearly that Jesus is speaking prophetically to the church in the last 2,000 years. Prophetically for John. Because as John is writing them down, he is part of the first of these seven churches. Yeah, John was connected to Ephesus historically, and we'll see that. But also he was part of Ephesus prophetically. And yet churches that were to come are all laid out here in the book of Revelation in a fantastic and amazing way. J. Vernon McGee in volume 5 of his commentary through the Bible wrote the following. He said, the panoramic history of the church is given in these seven letters from Pentecost to the Parousia, from the upper room to the upper air, and I would add from the realization of the church in its infancy to the rapture of the church in its maturity. This you will see in these seven letters. The church laid out before us. We are at a great place, by the way, in history. A fantastic place to be alive as a Christian. You know, sometimes you can look back and see the first century and go, Oh man, I just wish I had been there. 
You know, to see the faith of a Stephen and to listen to the preaching of a Paul. And hopefully not to be like a Eutychus who listened to Paul's preaching all through the night and fell out the window and was killed, but that's another story. He did come back to life. Like I said, it's another story. But to be involved in those days, wow, to see those things going on, I'll tell you something, I wouldn't trade the days that we live in. Because we're able to see things in a prophetic way. We're able to see things coming together that the first century church could not see. That they didn't know. Entire generations of Christians wondering what was going to happen prophetically because there was no existence of Israel whatsoever. And suddenly in this generation, boom, Israel is a nation again back on the scene. And we see things happening with prophetic urgency. This is a time to be alive. This is an amazing time in the history because we can now look back 2,000 years and with hindsight understand some things that not even John in his prophecy could have completely understood. This is great stuff. Again, for John, these letters were mostly prophetic. You may want to jot some of these dates down. We're going to come back and look at these over the next few weeks as we go one church at a time. But here are some dates, and you can see this overlay. I'm going to give these to you, and these are estimates, roughly, so don't hold me to the exact date. But for Ephesus, Ephesus, the first of the seven letters, the first of the seven churches, is the apostolic church. The word apostle, the apostolic church, from A.D. 30 to 100, roughly from the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus from the beginning of the church of Pentecost to around 100 A.D., the letter to Ephesus speaks to that church to that part, that epoch, if you will, in the church age. Ephesus, AD 30 to 100, the apostolic church. Secondly is Smyrna. Smyrna is the persecuted church. The persecuted church from AD 100 to 312. And we'll talk about the persecution the church went through, and it is unbelievable. It's breathtaking in its terror as the infant church was so horribly persecuted in the world. AD 100 to 312, the church... Of Smyrna. Pergamum represents the worldly church. The worldly church, AD 312 to 606. AD 312 to 606. And these first three churches, gang, you need to understand, prophetically speaking, and again, this will make sense over time, but prophetically speaking, these first three churches existed in, for a period of time in church history. Existed and then ceased to exist, kind of rolled on into the next age of the church. The last four, the last four, all began at a certain point in church history, but continue to this day. Continue to this day. How do we know that? Because in the last four letters, Jesus specifically references both his second coming and that church being alive at the time of his second coming and the tribulation, which all four of these last four churches will see. Here they are, Thyatira. Thyatira would be the idolatrous church, AD 606 to present day. Thyatira, the idolatrous church, AD 606 to the present day. Sardis, the next on the list is the dead church. That's a fun one. The dead church. Maybe you've attended that particular church. <laughs> AD 1520 to present day. AD 1520 to today. Philadelphia, the beloved church. Philadelphia, A.D. 1750. 1750 to today. And finally, Laodicea, the lukewarm church, A.D. 1900 to today. And we see an awful lot 
of living in Laodicea in the world in which we live today. And we'll get there. We'll talk about that. We can look back, gang, and see these stages or these conditions of the church, which affords us, again, a critical vantage point in history. In both church history and world history, Daniel wrote the following in in chapter 12 of Daniel, uh, verse 3, he said, Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Insight, perspective, awareness, understanding, which we can gain at this place, at this point in the history of the church of the last 2,000 years. Now, something else to know. You've got all that down, something else to know before we get into the first letter. Jesus, in these letters, with every letter, follows a specific pattern in the writing of the letter. In every church, he follows this pattern. He'll give the churches this pattern. We're going to follow this pattern as we study through. It's a five-part pattern for the seven letters to the seven churches. Number one, he begins with each church with a partial revelation. What do you mean? A partial revelation of himself. When we read the revelation of Jesus in chapter 1, one like a son of man clothed in a robe reaching to his feet, girded across his chest with a golden sash, head and hair white like white wool, like snow, eyes like a flame of fire, feet were like burnished bronze, voice like the sound of many waters, holding seven stars in his right hand, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. The revelation of Jesus, but it is parceled out. Partial revelation giving to every single one of the churches as it begins. A partial revelation. You see, with Ephesus, he's the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. The one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So what's the big deal about that? Well, this is amazing, gang. Because With each individual church, you only get a piece of the picture of Jesus. You have to have all seven churches to get the whole revelation. To see all of him. Now John gives the picture to us in chapter 1, all of Jesus revealed. But if you were just to glean or to gather together these seven letters to the seven specific churches, you'd have to have all seven to see Jesus. What does that tell us? We need the whole church to see Jesus. Not just the Bridge Christian Fellowship. Not just this church or that church or this one over here. It is through the whole body of Christ that Christ is seen. That He is revealed. That we understand and know Him better. Keep that thought in mind. It's fascinating to me that it's through the whole church Jesus chooses to be revealed. Well, he begins with a partial revelation. Secondly, he gives a positive affirmation to every church. He'll go through and say something positive about where they are, what they're doing, how they're handling things as a church. Of course, there is one exception. Of these seven churches, there is one church that receives no positive affirmation whatsoever. Laodicea, the lukewarm church, gets nothing good. That's the church of this age, gang. But we'll get there. Number three, he also then brings... First, a partial revelation, then a positive affirmation. Number three, a punitive admonition. A punitive admonition. Each church is specifically corrected for its problems with two exceptions. There are two of the five churches that receive nothing of a a condemning nature. No correction. Because they are dialed in to the Lord. We're talking about suffering Smyrna. And precious Philadelphia. Smyrna and Philadelphia get nothing negative from the Lord. Only positive. 
for what they're doing and where they're living and how they're handling things as churches. Number four, he offers a practical recommendation. A practical recommendation. Here's who I am, at least a piece of the puzzle, and here's what you've been doing well, and here's where you need some work, and here's how I can help. A practical recommendation. Here's what you need to do. Gang, Jesus loves us so much, so much that he meets us right where we are, but he refuses to leave us right where we are. Because typically right where we are is not where we should be. And so he meets us there in his grace, in his compassion, in his love. As we read this morning, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He comes to us just as we are, but he wants to take us forward. He wants us to be in a better place. Now last Saturday, a week ago, I got Corey behind the wheel for the first time. And it took about two hours after the fact for my knuckles to get blood in them again. I was holding on to the thing, you know. And it was great because as we're driving along, Corey at one point he goes, Dad, you going to hold on to that thing the whole time I'm driving? No, son, I'm good. I'm great. We're okay here. And he did a great job. And you need to understand this. And I love this about Corey. He's, he's, he's so honest and real. We're driving along and I said, how's this feeling? He goes, this is scary. And I remember that because everything's going on. You know, you pull out, there's a dog, there's a bird, there's a car coming, there's a pedestrian. Ah! You know, and we're going around and around over there by Cornet Bay in and out of this parking lot. And he's, he's trying to get this driving thing down. And he's doing what, what we all did. You remember, first time in the car, you're going... <laughs> and I'm like, look out that way, forget your feet. If you hit the wrong pedal, who cares? But if you hit that car, we're dead. And we're having, it, 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 was, it was really a special time. But he did a great job. First time behind the wheel. And yet I would never let him take the van out on the freeway the way he's driving right now. I was completely willing to jump behind the wheel with him to be in the passenger seat of my 15-year-old driving this car. I love Corey. I trust him. And he did a great job. But not good enough. I met him where he was. But I want him to feel confident as he drives. I want him to be in that place where, where he knows, I'm walking, I'm walking with some, some strength here. I get behind the wheel and I, I can get from point A to point B. And that's what Jesus wants for us. To get behind the wheel with confidence. We talked this morning about this. Don't live your Christian life in fear. Jesus doesn't want a bunch of Christians who are just scared to death because, oh no, Satan's attacking again. Well, Satan has no authority over you. Jesus has the power, and he wants you behind the wheel. And he wants you driving that car and doing the best you can do. He meets you where you are, but he wants you to take you to a better place. So Corey and I are going to spend a lot of time behind the wheel together. And Jesus wants to spend a lot of time behind the wheel with you. With each of these churches, he gives a practical recommendation. He doesn't just leave them thinking, okay, well, we did bad here, we did good here, oh, well, we're on our own. No, here's what you do. Practical. Here's something for you. And number five... And I think this is the best of all. With every single one of these letters, he gives an eternal motivation. An eternal motivation. Revelation 22:12. the book comes close to concluding with the following statement. Behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me. I'm coming and I'm bringing my reward. And the book of Revelation, more excuse me, than any other book in the entire Bible, gives us the eternal motivation. Because for the first time, we get heaven laid out before us. We get this amazing picture of what it's going to be like in human terms. And, and it still can't paint the picture. I mean, we're going to be absolutely overwhelmed. 
But at some level, we have a motivation. We see where we're going so that when we look around this world and we compare the two, we go, <laughs> no contest. This is where I want to be. And with every single one of the churches, Jesus says, I've got something for you eternally, forever. Something fantastic. And if you will remember this and focus on the eternal, and by the way, it's the best way to motivate anybody. Give them an eternal reason for living. Don't give me a motivation based on this life. Rick, if you'll use these products for 40 days, you will grow more hair. <laughs> yeah, and I'm going to lose it again later. You know, if you'll use this specific kind of toothpaste, you'll get whiter teeth. Yeah, and they're going to go yellow later. I mean, I've never yet seen a skeleton with nice shiny white teeth. Eternal motivation. Eternal. Jesus wants us looking ahead. I think this is fantastic. Paul, in the book of First and Second Thessalonians, he wrote, wrote to this church in Thessalonica. And what we see, and you might not recognize this right up front, Paul spent three Sabbaths, so three, maybe four weeks tops, in Thessalonica planting the church. Now, I, I think about that. Apply it to the bridge. We've been here two years. I mean, what would have happened to the Bridge Christian Fellowship if, if I had come out here and spent four weeks here and said, Good luck, you're on your own, God bless, I'll see you later. What would have happened? And yet that's exactly what happened in Thessalonica. Three weeks with a church, Paul spent with them, and then he had to move on, continuing his missionary journey, continuing his church planting, and Thessalonica became a solid, grounded church. Why? Well... In those short three weeks, you know what the number one topic of conversation with the Apostle Paul was? It was prophetic. It was the coming of Christ. It wasn't basics in Christianity. I'm sure he laid out some basics for them. But they knew this church in just three weeks, these people were taught about the second coming of Jesus. How do you know that, Rick? Because I've read 2 Thessalonians. And in 2 Thessalonians, he's answering all the questions that have arisen in the last year since he left Thessalonica after spending three weeks there. And it's all prophecy. It's all about the coming of Jesus. What's up with that, Paul? Paul understood something. Man, if you've got a short time to spend with somebody, you talk about heaven. If you only have a short amount of time to give someone the gospel of Jesus, you give them the gospel pointing them to eternity, not to how it's going to make today better for you. Because as we said a couple weeks ago, it may not make today better for you. You may find yourself castigated, pushed out, made fun of. You may in the workplace be uncomfortable. You may be on a football team, say it, oh, I don't know, Eastern. And because you choose to live as a Christian, you get shunned. It's just because you're a Christian. Man, it's the wrong thing to tell someone, come to church with me, it'll change your life and everything will be rosy. Not necessarily, but I'll promise you this. You give your life to Christ and eternity will blow your mind. You'll be with Him forever. It will be awesome. We have this to look forward to. Jesus is coming back. And when He comes back, well first He's going to call us up and we're going to spend seven years with Him in this incredible seven year honeymoon. And then we're coming back with Him. And we're going to rule and reign with Him. Well, how do you know that? Well, that's what the Bible says. We're going to do that. Give them that picture. As opposed to walking away with a few... Pop psychology reasons for living a better life. That's baloney. I don't want to live a better life. I want to live an eternal life. Amen. And so Jesus gives an eternal motivation. Heaven is the ultimate motivation. And the problem, honestly, in the church today, the reason why we aren't as motivated as I think we could be, is it's not just that we don't know much about history. We don't know much about the heavenlies. 
if we understood heaven better, if we studied specifically the last couple of chapters of this book that we're looking at right now, we'd be freaked out all the time. Because it's awesome. This is where we're going. An eternal motivation. And you will know about the heavenlies, by the way, through by the time we're done with this study. My hope for you is that you guys end up being, you know, like tour guides. It'd be great. Everybody else is, you know, being raptured and going, what is this? What's that? And you're going, oh, let's see, that's the uh, heavenly tabernacle over there. We studied that back in the, the bridge. And, you know, that's what we want here. Okay? <laughs>